Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, we continue our look at Western alienation and Alberta independence. Nearly two decades after the famous firewall letter, where are things and where are they headed? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show, continuing our series on Western alienation, part two of this two-part series we started earlier in the week. And I'm very grateful to all the people that responded to that episode and had a a lot of interesting feedback. One of the big ones that I, I want to address right out of the gate is people expressing a bit of frustration that I use Western alienation and Alberta independence somewhat interchangeably. And and the argument was coming from people from Saskatchewan and even British Columbia and Manitoba that are saying, whoa, hang on, I mean, I'm upset with uh, with the Western treatment by Canada as well. I'm looking at finding ways that we can get a a better deal, and I'm not in Alberta. And I'd say completely fair point. I, I did try to talk about Western alienation as a more broad concept, But I also think it's fairly safe to say that the hotbed of this sentiment is in Alberta. That's where the conference I was at, the Freedom Talk conference was. That's where a lot of the discussions have been in the provincial government. That's where the Fair Deal panel is. But no, there there is a completely valid point here that it isn't just about Alberta versus Canada. It's Alberta, parts of BC, Saskatchewan, parts of Manitoba against the Canadian treatment of this whole region. And I'm certain that people in northern BC are not happy getting lumped in with Vancouver, Victoria, and the uh, so-called Lower Mainland. So to the people in northern BC that see themselves as Albertans at heart, I'm with you. To the people of Saskatchewan that have their own grievances that are very similar to those of Alberta, I'm with you as well. This episode, when I talk about the Western alienation, the Western independence, and Alberta independence, know that I am totally aware of these things, and certainly this is a, a broader concept. And it's why to the few people that emailed me and said, well, why are you stoking Western separatism? I respond that I'm not. What I want, and I was unequivocal about this when I, I spoke at Freedom Talk, I want a Canada that respects all regions of Canada and a Canada that does this in a way that is not inviting separatism. And that's the problem. I think it's a failure of confederation when provinces are not able to enjoy their own success without having to write checks to the rest of Canada, despite the ingratitude of the rest of Canada. And that's what the equalization formula, as one notable example, has certainly done. So we focused on the political side of this in the first part of the series, and I want to look at some of the cultural aspects of this. What is the discussion really trying to accomplish? What's the backdrop for it? And as such, what is it going to look like moving forward? I want to first share with you my interview with Danny Hozak, the chairman of the Economic Education Association of Alberta, which is the group that hosts Freedom Talk, this conference that I was at doing interviews on the weekend about Western alienation and Western independence, and specifically Alberta independence. And I spoke with Danny about what it is that they're really looking for, what it is that the goal is is for him personally, for the people at the conference, and how this fits into the discussion that is going on right now across Alberta. And this is our chat. 
Good to talk to you, Danny. Thanks for doing this, for inviting me, and thanks for sitting down today. Thank you. It's, uh, we've enjoyed your presentation. We think it's a great function. It's going well. Thanks for being here. Good. So let's talk about where we are now. I, I was at your event six months ago and, and spoke and spoke to you there. And what would you say has changed in the Alberta independence discussion since November? Well, certainly our hope that the Fair Deal panel w would come back with a, a roadmap to recovery has changed because now they've come back with their with their recommend. The panel has reported. The government has made recommendations based on the report. And as I said yesterday, their recommendations were, in our humble opinion, more talk than action. And we were disappointed by that. And that's one of the reasons that we're forging ahead right now is we're saying somebody has to make something happened. We need to get a new deal for Alberta, and we're intent on doing that. And I think the number of people who realize that we need a new deal is growing by the day. When I told a couple of people that I was going to be coming out and, and speaking and, and reporting here, I had one person who had said, oh, is that that separatist conference in Alberta? And it, what's, I think, interesting is that that really isn't the case at all. I mean, certainly there are some people here that I think are very pessimistic on the forecast of, of what Alberta can do. But you've been fairly clear on this, that you want a good deal for Alberta, whether that's in Confederation or outside of Confederation, stands to be seen, but your hope is still that Alberta can function within the Canadian experience. Is that the case? A absolutely. You know what I mean? Uh, there, there, we, 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 you're right. We just want to, we want to get a, a new deal. We want it to fairly reflect everyone's co contributions to the, to the country, but uh, we're, we're certainly quite happy to get it within the country. And as, you know, even our speakers remains pointed out this morning, I mean, all we have to do is take charge of a lot of our, uh, our take, you know, have our own police force, you know, collect our own taxes, have our, have our own pension plan, have our own, own unemployment program. And I think it will take a heat, a lot of the heat and a lot of the, the anger and resentment out of some of the discussions we're having. And, and once we've got them, most of us, I think, would be happy to just get back to work uh, living, living, the, living the good life. One of the themes that you've mentioned, and I, I know other people have mentioned at the conference this weekend, is that we're coming up in January on the 20th anniversary of the firewall letter. And I, I think that while well, looking back on that, what it shows us is that a lot of these concerns and a lot of the suggestions to fix them are not new. So I guess for you, you've been in Alberta politics for years. Why do you think now is different? I mean, why do you think that the discussion will or, or should grab hold now in a way that it didn't in 2001? Well, I think it's that old saying, fool me once, uh, shame on you, <laughs> fool me twice, yeah. shame on me. You know what I mean? And I think there's a growing number of people are realizing, you know, what the heck, this is, this is, this is, this is happening again. This is mm -hmm. the second time in many of our lifetimes that an Eastern-led government has destroyed a generation of Alberta's uh, accumulated wealth, the hopes and dreams of families and communities and businesses, and enough is enough, to put it quite frankly. And so we want to make something happen. I mean, people are com committed to making it happen. And I think increasingly we're realizing, one, one of the sayings I like is that you're not a... No matter how many times you fail, you're not a failure until you blame someone else. And I think for too long we've sort of looked at this problem and thought, oh, yeah, you know, Ontario isn't treating us right, Quebec isn't treating us right, someone isn't treating us right. But I think all of a sudden the realization is sinking in. Getting, getting a better deal is within our grasp. We just have to do it. It's not our fault that Quebec got a better deal than we did. Uh, they obviously read the art of the deal sooner than we did. And so uh, they, they've got a good deal, but we've been... To me, 
if, if there's blame to be laid, it has to be laid at the feet of the people who have represented Alberta over the last 30 years. They've let, they've let, they've let our wealth slip away, and now when we really do need to have some re resources, we're in the, the most difficult financial situation we've been in the province since the 30s, and we're ill-prepared for, for the storm that's upon us. I know one of the things, and you talked about this with the Fair Deal report, is that a lot of people don't feel that even the Alberta government, the provincial government, is doing enough to lobby for Alberta's interests in Ottawa. And even if you take a very cynical view of politics, which is to say that, you know, they just do things to get reelected, if there is a, enough of a growing sentiment of wanting independence, of feeling alienated, why is there not a political incentive for the Alberta government to be a lot more of a fire breather? in discussions with Ottawa? I, I literally don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the only concrete action steps from the, the government's recommendations was to create a presence in Ottawa. And I thought, like, pardon me, like we actually, Alberta taxpayers did create a presence in Ottawa. Yes. They're ca called MPs. And, but it makes it very difficult for them to do their job when, when the leadership of our provinces, oh, everything's fine, we're hoping to get a little bit better deal, but everything's fine, you can always count on us. And, and so I think it's, it's unfair to our, like the, the leadership of Alberta doing that is unfair to our MPs. If, if our leaders would say, like, we want a new deal, well, then our MPs could go down there and bang on the table and say, look, my people aren't happy. We have to do something about this, and then it would happen. But when, when, the, when the premier of the province you're representing says, oh, everything's fine, we don't want to cause any trouble, if they went and pounded on the table, they'd be getting shunned by their colleagues just the same way as Drew Barnes is getting shunned by his colleagues for speaking up for the people that he's representing. And it's not even just a left versus right problem here. Jason Kenney, of course, a conservative, a longtime conservative stalwart. You look at the federal conservative party of Canada leadership race now, and not one of the leadership candidates hails from west of Toronto. And that doesn't mean that uh, the leadership candidates are not interested in the West and interested in Alberta and all of these issues, but there isn't a representation there. And I guess there are two parts to what I want to get at here. Number one, do you think that this is just because Albertans are not getting engaged at the federal level because they are so frustrated? And the other part is, what can you do, in your view, beyond these summits, which I think are a great starting point, to get more Western voices in these national discussions? Well, again, Alberta has to, they, they have to take charge of, the, of mm -hmm. making or creating their own destiny, and then everything will start to fall in place. And to the credit of the four uh, national conservative leadership, as you know, Derek Sloan was here yesterday, and I think, uh, I think he improved our province and our, our conference by being here, and I think uh, he went away, so he said, he went away with having a greater appreciation of some of the issues that we're dealing with. So we certainly appreciate them being here. But I, again, this is Alberta's responsibility. And I mean, and again, let's, and again, uh, you know, I've sort of laid the blame on our leadership, but having said that, I mean, there's a lot of us that have lived pretty comfortable lives, and we've let our leadership do that to us. And so we all, I mean, there's a growing movement to stand up and say, okay, what did we do wrong? That's why I asked people earlier to read uh, Michael Wagner's book about separation, because some of the people who have become newly frustrated, newly alienated, or, you know, I mean, all the, they're talking about, well, we're going to change this in three or four years just because mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're focused on it. And, and the point we're making is, We've tried this, we, and we've been to this dance before, and it's, it's by no means certain that we'll get a, 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 a new deal, but it's certain that we're not going to stop trying until we do. 
So let me ask you then, Danny, about where you want to see this go, because you said on stage, and I think it was very apt, that talk's a lot easier than action, but, you know, action ultimately does more than talk, and I think the middle ground there was that sometimes you need the talk to, to trigger the action. What is the action? Because for a lot of people, there was some optimism and hope that the Fair Deal panel would be that. You're saying that wasn't the case. A referendum is something that Jason Kenney is pushing down the line a little bit, despite people wanting it more imminently. So what do you think the action would be in the ideal world that would get us to the point that you'd say, I think we're having a fair deal now, or we have a discussion that is leading to a fair deal now? Well, well I think, the, the, and we're going to talk about this this afternoon, leading to getting the, the, the new deal, uh, it there's three ways to there's it, it has to be led by our provincial government i mean the irrespective of a change come i mean the government is in charge of making things happen so it has to be led by the provincial government of alberta and uh, so there's there's three ways to make it happen one and at, at this point in time the the provincial government as you say you know premier kenny is i would say spending more time trying to delay action than actually you know, creating action. So we're going to try and come up with a, a specific a action step with with specific timelines. And there's three things. There's three way three ways of making it happen. And I say quite often that it's easier to change the government's mind than it is to change the government. So uh, we have sort of two plans for changing the government's mind and one for changing the government. And so the two, there's two ways to change the government's mind. One is you can go to your MLA and say, look, I know you're not talking about doing this, but we want you to change your mind and we want you to set a specific time frame for having our own police, for having our, collecting our own tax, for having our own pension. And with at the same time as you're laying out this agenda, set a specific date for voting on you know, autonomy or separation or whatever if we're not able to achieve some of these things, although most of them we don't need the approval of these to do them anyway, so we can just darn well do it. So step one is talk to your MLA and say, do you want to change your mind? Do you want to help us, you know, get a new deal for Alberta? If you can't change the MLA's mind, well, then you have to change the MLA. So a lot of people want to be involved in the UCP and they don't have any intention of working in a different party, but they're absolutely committed, as are we, to getting a new deal. So they're going to go and try and change the MLA's mind. If they can't do that, they're going to set their sights on changing the MLA. So there's going to be a group of people working on that. And clearly, as you heard yesterday, there's a group of people who think, well, you're not going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to change the government. And as you know, Paul Hyman uh, announced yesterday that he was going to be the interim leader of the new Wild Rose Independence Party. And he's going to start traveling the province talking about why, you know, trying to change the government's mind isn't worth the trouble and that we need to make a plan to change the government in 2023. So those are the three, and we're going to, you know, we're gonna, after dinner, we're going to, after lunch, we're going to take some suggestions from people, like, where do you want to help in this continuum? One of the things that we've said to our group, we're, we're all sort of fighting the same war against, you know, the assault on freedom and debt and deficit and everything else, but we're not, we're not all at every battle at all the time. We're going to be at lots of different battles in, in different areas and different people want to address it in different ways. But we're going, to, you know, we're going to try and coordinate all the work we're doing and move forward, but we're certainly going to say, look, I think it's September 1st is the, uh, 150, is it the 115th anniversary of the beginning of uh, Alberta. So we're going to, by then, we're hoping to lay out a pretty concrete plan of what the other timelines we want. And uh, so anyway, that's our plan, and it's uh, hidden in plain sight. All right. Well, I'm glad it is. Danny Hozak is the chairman of the Economic Education Association. Thanks again for having me and for sitting down today. Thank you.
I think Danny Hozak's position on this is an important one. He wants the best deal for Alberta. If that's in Confederation, great. If it has to be out of Confederation, that is a last resort. But the point of this that I think a lot of people are missing out on is that it's you is that you can't just discount the experiences and frustrations of people in the West by saying, oh, you know, they're just separatists or, oh, they're never going to be happy. No, the vast majority want to be happy. The vast majority want a deal that's going to make it so that a lot of these concerns that are reaching, nearing, or potentially are at a boiling point will subside. But when you have Jason Kenney dismissing these concerns, when you have a federal government that despite uh, really just giving lip service to Western fears in October has done absolutely nothing to ensure the West feel like they are at the table, this is only going to get worse. And a lot of the specifics of what it is that people in the West want, it's not just about the cultural shock here of a liberal country versus a conservative province. It isn't about that. People try to simplify it to that, but that isn't it at all. In fact, if you look at the com com combined populations of Alberta, Saskatchewan, northern BC, Manitoba, these are areas that are very conservative in nature. They make up a huge chunk of Canada, but still they don't feel like their interests are represented in the federal government, and by extension in, in Confederation's uh, primary system of government, which is Parliament in Ottawa. And what's interesting here is that a lot of the things that are being sought are not radical concepts at all. In fact, one of the most notable qualities is that many of these things were proposed nearly two decades ago. And by some of these proposals, what I'm talking about are areas where the West wants to, for lack of a better term, repatriate things that are currently handled by the federal government that could be under provincial control, notably policing, notably an Alberta pension plan rather than the Canada pension plan. Quebec has done these things. Why can't Alberta? That's the refrain. And many of these ideas were laid out in 2001 in a famous op-ed called The Firewall Letter that was authored by a number of luminaries, including Stephen Harper and Professor Tom Flanagan, who went on to be the campaign manager that steered Stephen Harper's conservatives to victory in 2006. But in 2001, the question was, how can we in Alberta put, for lack of a better term, a firewall around us? And there was a lot of controversy here, a lot of people that thought this was separation, but what's interesting is that it wasn't. It wasn't actually about separation, it was about trying to avoid the flare-up in tensions that we are seeing now. Because if this had gone forward, Alberta wouldn't have been as reliant on the federal government now. I sat down with Tom Flanagan at the conference and we spoke about the letter coming up on its 20th anniversary and looking at how the situation is now and ultimately how the ideas put forward in the letter fared. Tom, it's uh, good to talk to you again. Thanks for sitting down with me today. Oh, my pleasure. You know, this is a really pivotal point in Alberta. A lot of people are, are talking about independence, alienation, discussed as, as something being at an all-time high. It's been nearly 20 years since the famous Alberta Firewall letter was first published in the National Post. Coming up January 2001 was the initial publication of it. And what's interesting when I hear a lot of the independents talk now is that almost all of the remedies that are being proposed are, are things that were enumerated quite clearly in that letter. So I guess as you look back at that, I mean, why do you think this has really hit a resurgence now, almost two decades later? Yeah, well, it is a kind of a funny history. The 
so-called firewall letter was actually Stephen Harper's idea and uh, came to him after the 2000 election and the Canadian Alliance was appeared to be stalled and Stephen was president of the National Citizens Coalition and he was thinking of a, a way to um, revivify provinces mm -hmm. in Canada because it looked like change through the federal government would be would not be possible so some friends, we sat down and we kind of brainstormed on what would be some ways in which provinces could make greater use of their constitutional powers. It wasn't meant to be a separatist document, uh, but it was meant to encourage provinces uh, to move uh, in a more autonomous direction. And we wrote the first one for Alberta, but actually Stephen intended there to be other letters for other provinces as well. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, everything changed very quickly. Um, when uh, the Canadian Alliance declared a leadership race to be open, Stockwell Day had gotten into political trouble. Stephen decided to run for leader of the Alliance, and so he never did anything further with the firewall letter at all. Uh, he moved into, uh, he, he saw an opportunity to change federal politics, which in fact he did, uh, in, you know, uh, became prime minister for 10 years. Um, and so in the period when Stephen was prime minister, there wasn't this kind of talk of, uh, of uh, separation in Alberta. Uh, Stephen didn't deliver everything that Albertans might have wanted, but at least he, he didn't appear to be hostile. So, you know, he appeared to be friendly. And uh, he spoke in favor of the oil industry and of pipelines. And uh, he, uh, so I think Albertans were satisfied. But in the meantime, the ideas of the firewall letter were percolating. Even though Stephen chose not to do anything with them after he got into federal politics, they caught on in grassroots elements within provincial politics, uh, the Wild Rose Party particularly. And um, they were kept alive uh, by provincial parties and finally became part of Jason Kenney's um, platform. And, he ended up appointing the Fair Deal Panel, which is to examine a lot of what was in the firewall letter, plus a lot of other good mm -hmm. ideas, too. So the thing has snowballed as time goes on. It, uh, it's sort of way... We, we wrote it, I say we, I just held the pen, people contributed ideas. Uh, I just edited it. I always call myself the editor general. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it got way beyond our... Uh, conception it's and now being used for totally different purposes um, which is fine you know there's no there's no property rights it's political ideas so uh, but it's had an interesting life uh, life of its own so where it is now I think it, it's been a source of ideas for Alberta to fight for a better deal maybe could can leading to a uh, separation someday, but that's not really necessarily part of it at all. It's um, it's a way of fighting back, taking the initiative. Now, interestingly, I think the best idea of all that, that has come up since then is to take on the equalization issue. That that was not in the firewall letter. We didn't think of that one. Uh, um, just, as I say, it was six guys brainstorming. Mm -hmm. And we put down some ideas that looked good to us, but it wasn't a product of extensive research. So we didn't even think of equalization. But, but since then, there have been Supreme Court decisions which uh, have uh, made it possible to, uh, to take that on. 
So I think Jason has done the logical thing is to single out equalization as the lowest hanging fruit. I, if you hold a referendum on equalization, you're going to get like 90% plus in Alberta voting, uh, whatever precisely the question is, that it'll be on the against equalization. So you start there with a big success, and then you try and then you demand that the other provinces come to the table for and federal government for constitutional negotiations. And now we have a, a Supreme Court authority for that, and then you go from there. So I think it's, uh, I think it may have some legs. Do you think that the fact that the firewall letter didn't really have imminently any real effect is evidence of the fact that these concerns will almost be cyclical, where it will come and then people will move on from it? Or do you think that the dialogue is different this time around? Well, no, no, I think that it, it is cyclical with respect to federal politics. The movement for the Reform Party arose uh, basically as a reaction to the, uh, first as a reaction to the National Energy Program, but then disappointment in the Mulroney government, uh, belief that the Mulroney government wasn't that much different from the Pierre Trudeau's government. Maybe that was unfair to Mulroney, but anyway, that's how people proceeded. Um, then that resulted in a long train of events, Reform Party, Canadian Alliance, merger with the remnants of the progressive conservatives, the Harper government for 10 years, people in the West were largely satisfied. Mm -hmm. uh, then you get a change in power uh, and, and policies that are since 2015 that have been hostile to the to the interests of Albertans. And then a re-election of that government, which was the, yeah, the, the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, the re-election of the government. Um, and so, uh, you know, if, if federal politics moves in a different direction, then I think the the uh, uh, the antagonism in Alberta will again decline. It really plays off what the federal government is doing. But when the federal government is attacking our livelihood, uh, naturally the temperature is going to rise. So, I, you know, I, my weakness in politics, I could never predict the future. Mm -hmm. You know, if I could, I wouldn't be just a lousy retired professor. Now I'd be <laughs> something much more important. Um, so I can't predict the future, but I think the pattern is clear that if if the federal government is attacking Alberta, Albertans are going to want to fight back. And the ideas that were in the firewall letter originally for a different purpose, but they can now be used. In the meantime, they've grown and, and been elaborated by others. And um, I think they're going to provide some ammunition for, uh, for fighting back. Um, uh, up until now, Alberta has largely been just, you know, complaining about federal uh, initiatives, but hasn't had initiatives of its own. And so I think that's what the, the, the letter now will provide is some bullets to fire, uh, starting with equalization, then creating an Alberta police force, possibly an Alberta pension plan. These, these are initiatives that A, could be good for Alberta, and B, are disruptive to um, uh, federal, existing federal programs and policies. Mm -hmm. So this can be a way, I would hope, of bringing whoever is in charge of the federal government, bringing them to the table and saying, look, the situation is intolerable and uh, you're going to have to make some concessions. Uh, so I, you know, uh, but I, I was really impressed with uh, Germain Belzile's presentation. You know, this is a long game. The separatist movement in Quebec originates, let's say, in the early 1960s. Well, that's, you know, almost 60 years ago. And it took decades for them uh, to achieve 
the various objectives. You know, it's all gradual over a long period of time, and there were setbacks along the way. But uh, we're really just now setting out in Alberta with our own version of, uh, of let's call it an autonomous strategy. It doesn't yield dividend, uh, dividends overnight. It's going to take time. And I guess if to go with some of those firewall recommendations of repatriating a police force, a pension plan, and, uh, you know, perhaps even taking federal income tax uh, in Alberta and then passing it on to the government and Alberta Revenue Agency, it's another idea that's been put forward. All of these suggestions, do you not think these are leading themselves to a point where Alberta will be so segregated from the Canadian experience, if you will, that it, it might just be worth cutting that final thread which is the connection to Canada, being a province of Canada. Yeah. Well, it could end in two ways. Uh, it could, yes, it could keep building and building and building until there's not much of a connection left and uh, uh, separation becomes a foregone conclusion. But as I was listening to Belzil this morning, it occurred to me that there could also be, a, you might call it an autonomy trap, that if you're successful in your demands for greater control over your own affairs and you end up with your own police force and your own pension plan, and uh, uh, equalization becomes less harmful, and uh, you have a bunch of other things, uh, then you say, well, okay, we can live with that. <laughs> and that's kind of what's happened in Quebec as the demand for separation, uh, which was driving it and made federal politicians willing to make concessions, but the demand for separation hasn't disappeared, but it has certainly declined. So it could be that by making these concessions, um, uh, the situation gets resolved uh, and the uh, Albertans are are happy, you know, content with uh, with greater autonomy. But, I mean, a lot of this is going to depend on, on factors from outside. Um, if the, uh, no matter what you did about a pension plan and a police force, if uh, the federal government is still trying to strangle your main industry, mm -hmm. uh, there are going to be demands for separation. So some things have to happen outside of the drive for greater autonomy. I've heard from a lot of people at the conference this weekend that Jason Kenney is not the answer. This guy who a couple of years ago, it seems like, was being trumpeted as the savior of Alberta coming in, uniting the right, is now uh, just not really held in, in high esteem by a lot of the most adamant separatists. And I, I know you and I were talking earlier about this, and you're saying that you think it's far too early to reach a conclusion that he's not dealing with this issue. Yeah, I think we, personally, I believe we need to give Jason a chance. He came back to Alberta. He pulled off an amazing political accomplishment of first becoming leader of the Progressive Conservatives and then leading a merger drive with Wild Rose and then become leader of Wild Rose and then defeating uh, uh, the NDP in an election overwhelmingly. So, you know, he's already accomplished a political trifecta. Um, the guy's obviously got political talent. I mean, I, I know that anyway, having known Jason for a long time. He's got tremendous political ability. And I'm certainly not ready to uh, to write him off. Uh, he's been sideswiped by um, the, uh, you know, the combination of uh, the price, international price war over oil and COVID. These are things that were largely out of his control. So... Uh, I think this has affected the timetable, but I can still see the plan emerging. And I think that, uh, but you know, I say this because I'm comfortably retired living on my pension. Uh, you know, if I was owning a, a small oil company, I might be a lot more impatient.
Yes, and I, I mean that was, so, uh, and I understand that. And that was, I mean, very much the Stephen Harper approach on issues—that incrementalism, very pragmatic, and certainly rooted in in a conservative philosophy. And I, I think there are a lot of people that don't want incrementalism when things are so bad in their view right now. Yeah, I know, and it's, I understand the impatience. I used to be impatient <laughs> myself, but before you were retired, now you've got time. <laughs> but uh, no, I can remember Stephen saying that. Uh, a conservative party has to be incremental. Um, the only successful strategy for a conservative party is incrementalism. He said that long, long time ago when he was still a very young man. And do you think that's still true? And I think right that's now? still true. Yeah, and I see this as an application of incrementalism to to Alberta. It's an it's call it an application of Harperism to Alberta. You know, it's no surprise that Jason was being helped a great deal in the background by by Harper. Uh, so um, I think it worked as long as it was being applied in Ottawa. Uh, you know, eventually it was defeated. But for 10 years, I think it, incrementalism showed that it can work. And I think it can work here, too. But it does, by definition, it takes time. Don Flanagan, thank you very much. Okay. Glad to talk. I think the fact that after nearly two decades, a lot of these problems have come back again, and some people would argue they never went away, but the fact that they're coming back again with such fervor is an indication that the cultural battle is really what matters here. And right now, the culture in Alberta has shifted a bit, or at the very least, they think that the culture in Canada has shifted a bit in the other direction. And I think this is why any large movement needs to have some momentum, which means it needs to have a, a cultural backdrop that is receptive to that movement. Politicians are always going to be, and I've said this before, followers. And that's not to knock them, but it's that they are products of the culture in which they live, which means that a politician is not going to do something too, too radical if they want to get reelected unless they know that there's a portion of the population that is there supporting it. They need the cover to say, well, I'm, I'm doing what the people want. And that was why Drew Barnes, with whom we spoke in the first part of this series, was so frustrated with the Fair Deal panel report because he didn't think it was aligning with what the people of Alberta were actually telling him when he was going around the province having these panel meetings and people were coming up to the microphone. And he didn't see that really translated into the report itself. So a lot of these things must advance and must continue. Otherwise, there's never going to be that significant change. And the fact that two decades has elapsed since the firewall letter and we're back to where we were there is evidence of this. So I do want to talk about a little bit of the specific part of this, because when there is a proposal afoot like the one that was in the firewall letter and like some of the ideas that are there now, it's easy to get caught up in the abstract of, well, you know, Western alienation, Western independence, Alberta separation, all of these things without dealing with the meat of it. I talked at the beginning of the show about equalization payments, probably one of the biggest frustrations and the biggest grievances that the people of Alberta have with their treatment. $20 billion to $40 billion that Alberta is sending that is pure purely for the betterment of other provinces in confederation. Imagine if, for example, New York was forced to subsidize Idaho or California was forced to subsidize Wyoming or whatever the case is. I mean, they, they would never stand for that because in the United States, each state has as kind of its birthright 
the ability to govern its own affairs, the ability to bring in its own revenue, the ability to do all of these things that are necessary for the betterment of the state. But in Canada, we take for granted that the successful provinces, the haves, must subsidize and bankroll the less successful ones, the have-nots. And I don't know if this is just from this very caricaturistic version of what it means to be Canadian about, oh, we look out for our neighbors and all of that. But in actuality, what it means is that provinces like Alberta, who have had a great deal of oil revenue and energy success, but are still economically hurting in many ways. The true Alberta success has not translated if you look around at suicide rates, at uh, commercial vacancy rates, at drug use, domestic violence, all of these metrics that show as True North dealt with in a documentary a couple of months ago that show a Calgary in crisis, yet Alberta is still profiting in such a way that it can bankroll the have-not provinces. And there's something about this that is very unjust, because it means that a province can never quite get ahead if the first 20 to $40 billion that it brings in belongs to the federal government for the purposes of wealth redistribution. So what a lot of people in Alberta want is to find ways that they can govern their own affairs more adequately. One example of this is to have an Alberta police force. Not the RCMP operating in Alberta as a provincial police force, but an Alberta police force like Ontario has with the OPP, like Quebec has with the Charité de Québec. And this is an area where a lot of the naysayers, people that aren't fond of the independence idea, will try to say, oh, but I mean, you, you, can't, you can't do that. You can't make that change. Alberta has the RCMP. And even uh, some people will say, well, if Alberta separates, I mean, what are they going to do for a military? People start to come up with reasons why Alberta can't move on its independence goals. And a lot of these, as former member of parliament Rob Anders spoke about, are pretty easily dealt with. Rob Anders spoke about the law enforcement and military component specifically in his speech at Freedom Talk. And I, I thought it was interesting for two reasons, because number one, it gives some ideas that could be implemented now. And it also really talks about the scenarios if Alberta were to move forward on independence and why one of the chief criticisms that people give isn't really one that holds water. This is my chat with Rob Anders. Rob, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. So let's talk about where we are in the Alberta independence discussion, because I find that a lot of people who tend to be resistant to the idea really try to focus on a lot of the details to the point of, I think, trying to railroad the process about, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And in your talk this weekend, you really, I think, dismantled a lot of that, specifically on policing and military by showing that there's not just a, a way that Alberta could deal with that moving forward to be a bit more autonomous or even perhaps completely sovereign, but a, a way that has already been done before elsewhere. It's not all that radical. Yeah, I, I like to use templates. I'm a, I'm a big believer in history and that it, it may not repeat itself, but at least it echoes. So uh, when, it, when it comes to policing, Alberta's already got the Alberta sheriffs. They've been operating, you know, for decades. We've got almost a thousand of them. Uh, you know, the RCMP force in this province is about 3,000. So literally, you know, one option is you could literally uh, fourfold the size of the Alberta sheriffs, mission accomplished. Uh, Alberta historically from 1916 to 1932, federal government didn't want to take on all the costs in the First World War, downloaded the police into the provinces. Uh, we had at that point, including Newfoundland, even pre-49, eight out of 10 provinces had their own provincial polices, mm -hmm. police forces, excuse me. So 
uh, and Alberta did a great job. You know, for the first year, there was a bit of a transition. There were some people who'd been part of the Northwest Mounted Police that, you know, got there through the nepotism or this, that, or whatever. And the first year or so, the Alberta Provincial Police sorted it out, and it became a force that had a, a better rate uh, with regard to uh, conviction, et cetera, than, uh, than the Northwest Mounted Police had been before. Uh, criminals wanted to avoid Alberta because it was known for a place that you were going to get convicted and go to jail, for, you know. And so we had a wonderful track record of policing, provincial policing in the 1920s all across Canada, particularly Alberta. Um, when, it, when it comes to the military, Alberta is between four and five million people. Uh, you can look at a half dozen jurisdictions in the United States that have their own reserves, you know, et cetera, some of them dating back into the 1600s. Uh, uh, you know, we have about uh, a half dozen countries that I compare us to, uh, Ireland, Moldova, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember all the ones, Switzerland. Croatia was one of them. I Croatia remember. was one. Uh, Switzerland during the Second World War, very impressive. Its population was just over 4 million people, almost exactly the same as Alberta. Yet, because of the reserve structure, they could raise 850,000 people to counter the Germans, potentially putting 2 million against their border. Um, that's the creme de la creme of you're having your own, you know, reserve and, and force to look after yourself. Uh, but, you know, some of the others are way more modest, a thousand people, etc. The numbers, the math. Uh, when you look at, uh, say, for example, policing, Alberta pays about $350 million a year to the federal government for the RCMP. Uh, oh, sorry, it pays about $350 million of its own, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and then we pay another $100 million to the federal government for their component. So for $100 million, it sounds like a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. But when Alberta sends 20 billion, some say 40 billion, depending on transfers to Ottawa, all right, so instead we're sending 19 billion 900 or whatever dollars we have to have to play with, and you have your own police force accountable to you, well, there's value in that. Uh, and with the military, if we had uh, a regular force, say for example, of 10,000, Canadians, Canada has 67,000 troops across the entire country. That would cost us, in terms of payroll, about a billion dollars. Well, there you go. For $18.9 billion surplus now, we've used $1.1 billion. We have our own police and our own military. Well, and I'd say it would even be less than that in a lot of ways, because the Canadian Armed Forces are paid in part by federal income tax that Albertans are paying, which, if we're to follow this to its logical end and Alberta's not paying that, that money would, would be in the Alberta Treasury. And I, I don't want to at all be accused of comparing Canada to China and Alberta to Hong Kong. But I, I do think that the one thing that is interesting in this dialogue is that Hong Kong and the people of Hong Kong have certainly seen what happens when your law enforcement body is not really in your domestic control. And, I, and I, again, I, I don't see the dynamic as being the same here. But when we do have an independence discussion and we do have a sovereignty discussion and to some, I would say, a sovereignty crisis, having a national police force that is not within your government's control can only be a recipe for trouble. Yeah, well, I've, I've been to Hong Kong and I've been harassed by, you know, the mainlander uh, police or what they've done to infuse that situation. I remember I was there, I was told, for example, that my hotel room was no longer available to me because I was there for a Falun Gong uh, mm -hmm. human rights uh, event. Uh, and it turns out my room key still worked and everything else, but the hotel was threatened if they didn't shut us out and get rid of wow. us, you know. The, 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 incredible, you know, uh, scare tactics that go on in Hong Kong, and I saw that years ago. Um, but yeah, I, you know, if we get out of a contract with the RCMP, I even think about it from the perspective of the police officers. 
you know, right now there's the whole, you know, official bilingualism. How many guys, gals in Alberta, you know, speak French would have to learn that to become a part of the RCMP, etc. Uh, they get to stay closer to home, which means you better understand the crime scenario, et cetera, and the players. Um, you know, another factor is the RCMP is engaged in a tremendous amount of social engineering. Like now, for example, in the RCMP, if you're a white male, in order to be, get past the first tranche of tests, you have to have 85%. If you're a female, 70%. If you're anything Aboriginal gender-wise, you know, it's 50%. Uh, we should be hiring the best people for the job. N none of this, you know, social engineering type stuff. So there's whole, there's all sorts of reasons uh, why, you know, I think it makes sense for us to go a provincial route. Um, you know, in the High River scenario, you know, uh, one of the things that happened there was, there, I first off asked a question when I got the talking points from the Prime Minister's office, and I thought, well, who, who the hell ordered this? Mm -hmm. Did we, did the federal government, give the authorization. Because that was, just for people not familiar, that was a case of RCMP officers going into people's homes, stealing their guns yep. under the guise of quote-unquote protecting them. Correct. Without warrants, mm -hmm. you know, w illegally, right, without sanction of law. And uh, so I, anyhow, I asked questions of the Prime Minister's office and we got questions, we got answers back within a half hour saying, no, we didn't authorize it. Okay. So that's troubling, okay, because normally people would expect that the RCP is busting indoors, taking guns. The Fed signed off on it, yeah. right? Well, in this case, we didn't, but we had a couple ministers in the province of Alberta who improperly gave instruction to do so. You mean provincial ministers? Yeah, yeah. So doesn't that work against the point you're making? Yeah, though? no, I get that it. That if there was an Alberta police but, force, but, but, bad decisions no, no, could still be made. Yeah, you're right. Bad decisions can still be made, but the problem in the previous scenario was that people assumed that the instruction came from the federal government, mm -hmm. okay? So if it's an, it's an Alberta Provincial Police Force, there's no assumption there. There's no muddying of the waters, right? The premier, or uh, in this case would have been Alison Redford, uh, or a minister like Doug Griffiths or uh, uh, Jonathan Dennis would be held responsible for that. As it was, the thing got brushed under the rug, obfuscation, there were some early uh, retirement packages for some of the RCMP mm. that were involved as senior officers, et cetera, and it just kind of went away. Uh, let's use another example, uh, because this one's really in terms of provincial, federal, you know, uh, conflict. Uh, you had that uh, Polish immigrant who uh, was tasered to death in the, in the airport uh, ah, yes. in Vancouver. Yes. Okay, BC asked twice for an inquiry into his death, okay? And twice the federal government, which controls the RCMP, right, said no. So that, that's an example where, yeah, if, if, if you want to look into something and you've got the Fed saying, no, we don't care about that, we're going to block that, you know, you get rid of that. Um, I, I think there is value to it. Um, I, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, say, for example, what Trudeau is doing now with 1,500 types of varieties of firearms, yes. by order and counsel, he's going to say are now illegal. They were legal before. And, uh, you know, the RCMP is the federal force that can be, you know, sent to your house to investigate yeah. whether or not you've got these, what you've done with them. Well, and the RCMP has also been the beneficiary of an outsourcing of the classifications. So they now have been granted a legislative mandate effectively that they don't actually have. Yeah. And I've been a big advocate of having a chief firearms officer in the province of Alberta that is elected by license owners in the province of Alberta. So if you have a gun license in the province of Alberta, you should be able to elect who your chief firearms officer is. And that means that you're probably not going to have a chief firearms officer who's shutting down uh, gun ranges that have been around for decades, 
because of some, you know, busy body complaining and coming by and saying, oh, what's, what's the status with your berm and, you know, this type of thing. Uh, and as well, uh, not giving authorization for a police force to say, oh, you know, you're on this registry or this registry that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, we're going to start snooping around and looking through the records of the gun dealers in town. And, uh, oh, by the way, you have something on this order and council BS list that the prime minister produced. Uh, cough it up, buddy. You know, yeah. we don't need that. So when we talk about, I mean, just the policing aspect, repatriating Alberta's police to a, a new provincial force, that's something that, in your view, could and, and should be done regardless of, you know, if Alberta's in or out of confederation. Absolutely. And you think it could be done relatively quickly. Yeah, well, according to uh, the actual contract we have, uh, uh, Article 3.3, uh, we have to give notice by March 31st of a, a year and then two years hence. So in our case, uh, you know, March 31st of next year, by then we would give notice, and then two years hence, we would be out of the contract. However, historically, when the federal government wanted to get out of policing in the First World War, because it was costing them money and they wanted to save money, put it toward the war effort over in Europe, uh, what they did is within a year, the federal government around the time of the budget basically said, what can you guys do about this? And by the time of the next federal budget, Alberta already had a provincial police force and it was done. So within a year. So where do you see the, the big sticking points truly being? Because it sounds like Alberta could have its own pension plan, Alberta could have its own police force, Alberta could have its own revenue agency. Uh, and a lot of these things are, are not new ideas. They've been proposed going back to the firewall letter almost 20 years ago. They've been proposed by MPs and, and MLAs. I mean, what what... Why has there not been traction on this? I think you've had a lot of people that uh, just haven't had the political will. It's, it's inertia. Uh, you know, you've had uh, people who, and, and some of them are, let's face it, uh, let's talk about Jason Kenney for a second, okay? Um, you know, some people have sugar plum fairies dance in their head about how someday they want to be prime minister. Well, what Alberta wants right now is a Rennie Levesque of Alberta. We don't want Captain Canada. We're tired of that, Right. Uh, we've been through enough. Uh, thank you very much. We don't need Captain Canada. We want somebody who's Alberta first, looking after us. Not capitulating to Trudeau over 1,500, you know, uh, gun restrictions. Uh, not kicking our money over to Ottawa all the time, etc. Enough. Uh, so, you know, we, we've had a bunch of uh, premiers in the past. I'll give you an example. Uh, Ralph Klein. Uh, when I was an early reform MP uh, back in my first term, uh, Paul Martin wanted to raise the pension contributions from 5.5 to 9.9% because it was an unfunded liability and the costs were going up and the population was getting older and all this stuff. Mike Harris, God bless him, said, no, Ontario is not part of that. Quebec, which has had their own pension plan for decades, has said, no, we're not part of that. So I and Diana Blonsi went to Ralph Klein, to the Alberta government, and said, all you need is one more province to say out and it's done. Ralph wouldn't do it. Hmm. He, uh, he was okay with our contribution rates going from 5.5 to 9.9, uh, maybe because he had a personal disagreement with Preston Manning, uh, maybe because he felt it was patriotic, I don't know. But Alberta at that time uh, had a lower unemployment rate. We had a younger demographic, which is still the case. Uh, and we would have paid half the amount of money and had a better pension than what the CPP could offer us. And that's with having the Ponzi scheme account the way it is. <laughs> if we had individualized accounts, like you have in Chile, for example, which Milton Friedman advocated, uh, wow, how much better would we be? You know, if you ask the average Canadian now, you say, well, what did you put into CPP last year? What do you have in aggregate? What was your return on investment? Smart people probably don't know. But if you go to Santiago, Chile, you walk down the street, they know. 
what what's in there. And uh, well, and just to interject there, no one would ever accept if they worked for a company that had a corporate pension plan, no one would ever accept the accounting of that being done the way it is for the federal government. <laughs> I mean, I liked getting my statements when I worked for a company that had a pension plan, and I know how much is in there. And I mean, no one would ever fly for a company saying, ah, yeah, just give us this, and, and we'll give us give it to you out of the pool when it's time. And, and, and for people who ask all these persnickety little questions, oh, what about this pension, and what about the parks, and what about the... You know, at the end of the day, here's how it cuts down real simple. Who would you rather have accountable for paying the bill? Alberta or Ottawa? Who's got the capacity? I would far rather have Alberta in charge of a pension system than Ottawa, because who's more fiscally solvent, right? Who's got the oil? Who's got the who's got the coal? <laughs> you know, Alberta. So uh, for all those people who worry about this, you know, if 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 see, I have a friend of mine, for example, lives down in Arizona. He's collecting a, a Canadian federal pension. Okay, no problems, no issues. Okay, but for the for the for the for the people who are 35 and younger. Right? You say, okay, we're going to do a new thing. You know, Alberta's going to have a pension system, et cetera. This is how it's going to work, et cetera. I like the idea of a super RRSP where 3% of your salary, uh, you know, maybe your employer matches it for 6%. Okay, get set aside in this thing. Uh, you can draw on it if for your first house. If you become unemployed, uh, you know, obviously if you retire, you know, uh, these types of things. And I, I think we would be way better off under a system like that. You know, because whether you're janitor or president of something, you, that's what you're getting, and, and you know that something's really there, and it's not this government-run Ponzi scheme. Uh, politicians made terrible bankers. It's the argument I've always had about the Alberta Heritage Savings Trust Fund, because it was used to buy the votes from Atlantic Canada with the constitutional negotiations for, you know, below market rates. Politicians don't make great, good bankers. I trust you with your money more than politicians. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, it's, uh, it was good to have you in politics and great to have you sitting down with me now. Rob Anderson. Good chatting. Thank you, sir. Now, I did a couple of other interviews at the conference last weekend that we'll have coming out in future episodes of the show, but they don't fit into that subject of Western alienation as clearly as the ones we've done in these two parts have. I hope you've taken something out of this. Certainly, it's a dialogue that I don't want to die down. It's one that is going to be an issue, and it's going to put some change forward. But what that looks like still stands to be seen. Is the change going to be Alberta leaving Confederation? Is the change going to be discontent in the West? Is the change just going to be people in the West uh, voting a different way because they are going to be voting along lines of securing a better deal rather than traditional left-right grounds? I don't quite know. But what I do know, as we see from the anniversary of the firewall letter, as we see from the mounting concerns and the fair deal panel meetings, the anger is not subsiding. The anger is not going away. And that means that it has to go somewhere and it has to be channeled somewhere. And look, the 2023 election in Alberta is a long way away. The 2023 federal election, if that's when it is, is a long way away. Although the federal election could be much, much sooner given a, a minority parliament. So the question that a lot of people have is if Justin Trudeau were to lose, if a conservative who is a big supporter of the West were to get in, would that be enough? I don't think it would. Because while there is a left-right divide here, it's not cleanly about political ideology. In a lot of cases, it is entirely about Alberta getting, we'll use that term again, a fair deal, or at the very least, a fairer deal. So unless someone is prepared to come in and do the heavy lifting on this file, even a new conservative prime minister, say, wouldn't be enough on its own. 
And I say on its own, there's not a, a single member of the conservative leadership race right now that is from the West. There are conservative MPs from the West. So obviously elevating one of them to a, a senior position would be a, a step in the right direction. But no one that is coming who innately understands these concerns is in the race. So even in the conservative party, a lot of people in the West are saying they're not represented, and that's something to keep an eye on as well. My thanks to all of you who sat down for the series, and of course all of you who watched it or listened to it. We'll be back next week with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.